0: and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host Hannah Adams. Summer is upon us in the mountains and that means the Appalachian Media Institute summer program is in full swing. This is a special AMI summer because it's the first in Apple Shop's history to be themed. To celebrate its 30th anniversary, AMI partnered up with another Apple Shop program, All Access EKY, to bring a female non-binary summer focusing on the issues of reproductive health care and access to birth control in Eastern Kentucky. Seven talented interns have spent six weeks studying documentaries, partaking in hands-on workshops and researching women's reproductive health care in preparation to make their own films. This Mountain hog includes media created throughout the summer, as well as interviews with the interns themselves. AMI's Lead Educator, Willa Johnson, explains her experience with the program and the history of AMI in All Access to further set the scene of this summer.
1: is Willa Johnson and I'm the media director for All Access EKY and the educator for the Summer Documentary Institute at the Appalachia Media Institute. I got involved with AMI when I was 21. Um, someone sent me an application for the Summer Documentary Institute. I had moved away out of high school and was really wanting to come back home. I was also really wanting to pursue my passion of media. Um, And so someone was like, this is the perfect fit for you. And so I came back and did the summer internship, and um, it was the first time anyone gave me a camera and told me how to use that camera and that you could use a camera professionally in East Kentucky. Um, And so I really loved it, but I also really found that I loved um, a lot of community organizing, and I loved – Uh, teaching. And so through the years, I've kind of came back and forth to AMI um, and also pursued some other career choices. And then the opportunity came up to come back to Apple Shop um, to lead a program called All Access EKY. And it was a project where I could work with young women and non-binary folks about reproductive health care and access to birth control because half of pregnancies in Kentucky are reported as unplanned pregnancies. Um, And I knew what I had faced as a young person with fears and with anxiety around my reproductive health care or questions I had. And so it got to combine, one, my passion of working with young women and giving them the opportunity I had, as well as getting to work with media. The history of Apple Shop. Everyone who was here in the beginning sort of has their own memory of it. But the overall story is that in 1969, the war on poverty was happening in America where people wanted to focus on um, how do we eradicate poverty in America. And a lot of imagery was coming out of Appalachia during this time that really just showed uh, one perspective of our communities. Um, And so there was a grant given to a young group of people here in Whitesburg to lead something called the Appalachian Film Workshop where they would learn how to use cameras and essentially leave the community, have this new skill and they could leave and and do camera work somewhere else. And what happened was they gave young people cameras and they saw their community through a lens that they got to control. And they were able to reflect the community that they know and love. And so yes, there's hardships here. Yes, there's poverty here. But there's also like a big sense of pride and a big sense of community. Um, And, like, how do you tell the whole story? Um, And so they didn't want to leave with those skills. They wanted to keep documenting here. And so the Appalachian Film Workshop evolved to Apple Shop. Um, And we are coming up on our 50th anniversary, which is huge and amazing and has created so much archival footage and documentaries and photos that really document this region on a level that's um, really impressive. And so 30 years ago, they decided we should continue our work with young people. We should continue sharing what we had as young people. And so Dee Davis and Jeff Hawkins, I actually just learned this, apparently came up with the idea for the Appalachian Media Institute during a basketball game. And so AMI was created and formed. And so now this is our 30th summer where every summer we bring in a group, um, usually around eight to 12 young people. And for four weeks we talk a lot about identity building and cameras and uh, media literacy and how to to run a camera, how to run lighting, how to run audio. And in the last four weeks we let them, we let them make a, a documentary. And so it's 30 years of young people documenting the region has led to a huge library of films that focus on really hard issues like the OxyContin epidemic or environmental disasters or really a, a beautiful library to document what it has been to be a part of the LGBTQ community throughout the last few decades here in the region. Um, and so it's, it's been pretty cutting edge in what they've created and And it's exciting to see it continue. Several years ago, Mimi Pickering and a group of people started working on a project called the East Kentucky Reproductive Health Project. And the idea was like there was an opportunity to come forward where we were just going to talk to women about what their reproductive health care had been like in the region. And so there wasn't a clear guiding topic, just reproductive health care. And what we were finding was that women had never been asked to talk about reproductive health care or that they had a lot of questions or it felt really taboo or just all these different things that were really preventing the conversation from happening in the first place. And so it was creating space for that to start and to begin. And so they did really beautiful work where they created a website where you could go to the website for resources. You could learn more about issues happening around reproductive health care, Um, They did some college, like, visits and library visits where they had created short films and showed them. And so that project ran its course and was sort of at a standstill. And then the opportunity came forward when the statistics were coming out that there was such a high rate of unplanned pregnancies in Kentucky. And all of our abortion clinics had been closed down to one in the entire state Um, or, you know, progressively Access to health insurance is getting harder, or access to good reproductive health care gets harder, um, and so clearly, like there was a need to tell these stories and like to create opportunity for young women to like learn more about it. And so we partnered with Kentucky Health Justice Network out of Central Kentucky and a national partners called Power to Decide, and we created this project called All Access EKY where we really built off of the work that was already happening with East Kentucky Reproductive Health. And we wanted young people, mainly women, young women, to create media pieces that told the stories of why they saw these barriers, of what was preventing them from having access, what was, you know, just what were those barriers, because it's easy as someone in their 30s or older to guess while that's happening but it's better to hear from the young people who aren't accessing it at the time and so we've been creating these media pieces and then we work with a steering committee made up of people who work in health departments and clinics and social services and lawyers who are working on this issue on another level so that we can share these stories and share these questions and sort of holistically approach how do we change the policy how do we change the everyday needs so that access is easier? This summer is different and special because it's the first time we've really had a theme that I know of in the 30 years. Overall, in 30 years, it's been pretty open for young people to decide what they're going to create pieces on. And this year, they had to they had to stick within the realm of reproductive health. Um, And so it's different, and I think it's been a really good experience because that's one thing you have to learn with media is that very rarely do you get to create media around just whatever you choose. Often it's going to be guided by something that you've been hired to do. So it's good to have that experience. This summer is different because it is a mostly female summer, not all female, but mostly female. And so it's been just different in terms of environment. And then this summer we hired experienced interns, so mostly people who had been through the program before or had worked with me through another program I had been on before. And so everyone came in with a baseline skill set that they could contribute. And so um, it created space for us to really just dive into the storytelling pretty quickly. I think it's exciting. And, you know, the one thing I keep thinking about the further we go into this summer is I keep hearing, like, sex education has been a major topic. Um, How do you get better sex education to young people? And I don't know what the answer is right now because it's clear that young people aren't feeling like they're getting what they needed from their public schools. And while that makes sense because that has the biggest audience, public schools is who can reach the most young people, it's really scary to leave sex education in the hands of public schools if it's not gonna be a set curriculum that is healthy and not shaming. And so programs like this, I think, are really exciting because we get to reach young people and really let them guide and tell us what they need, what they want, where they're confused, and bring in the resources for them. And the only thing I wish is that it could be bigger, that we could do this for more young people. I wish we had the reach that public schools do. And hopefully our media will do that for us. Hopefully the media can be that vehicle. I think it's important to be able to provide an alternative education space for young people to sort of facilitate what they need. So we're gonna have a film about access in the region in general. Um, What are the barriers? What are preventing young people from getting the birth control, the reproductive healthcare they need? And there's a focus a lot on young women and the queer community. You know, if you're transitioning from female to male or female to non-binary, you still have to worry about reproductive health care, but you might not be treated the same in the doctor's office. And so what are those barriers? How can, we, how can we help that community? We also are working on a piece about sex education or a lack of sex education and how often sex shaming becomes a thing in sex education, um, abstinence-only sex education, Is generally not healthy and and it leads to a lot of anxiety and it it shames young women mostly about having these urges and desires that are very natural that every young person feels and so how do we talk about sex in a healthy way that doesn't create these like anxieties or fears so that we're not like creating this community of people who are never going to be able to participate in a healthy way in something that's very natural. And then we also are doing a film. There's a, there's a large rate of out-of-home care in East Kentucky. There's a large rate of grandparents raising grandchildren. And if we think the divide in sex education happens from one generation to the next, what does it mean when it's two generations to the next? What does it mean when your grandmother is teaching you about sex education? And so how are families talking to each other? How are grandparents talking to grandchildren? What does it mean? to not have your parent there to teach you sex education Um, and so that will focus mostly on the generational side of of family um, dynamics.
0: At the beginning of this summer, the interns watched and listened to media created during previous semesters of All Access. This was a way to further educate them on the various types of birth control, the issues linked with obtaining reproductive health care in our region and many other relating topics. Now we'll hear some of these media pieces that help to inspire the films made this summer. First is a piece entitled, Let's Lark About It, which informs viewers of long-acting reversible contraceptives, including the implant, the IUD, and the depo shot.
2: Hey y'all, I'm Taylor Pratt from All Access EKY and I'm here to tell you about larks. Do you know what a lark is? If not, you're probably familiar with actual LARCs themselves, such as IUDs, subdermal contraceptives, and the birth control shot. LARCs stands for long-acting reversible contraception, which means it provides pregnancy protection for extended amounts of time, without having to worry about taking it every day at a certain time. They are recommended for all reproductive-age women, even teens. The subdermal contraception Nexplanon is a four-centimeter matchstick-sized birth control that is inserted into the skin of your upper arm that releases hormones into your body that prevent you from getting pregnant. The bar, as some people call it, can last up to three to four years. Some say that the advantages are that it minimizes pain, and 33% of patients said they had no periods. The Depo shot does require patient compliance. It is a shot you get every three months to prevent pregnancy. That means you only have to worry about it four times a year. How convenient! (laughs) It is 95 to 99 percent effective for three months and some women said that after a year of use 50 percent of them no longer had a period. The IUD is a small T-shaped size birth control inserted into the uterus. It lasts three to six years and copper IUDs last up to 12 and they are 99 percent effective. IUDs do require clinic visits to remove and insert and the size ranges from 32 millimeters and the copper IUDs are 36 millimeters. Both are roughly a little bit bigger than a quarter in size. Now, if you hear the term larks, you should know a little bit more about them. For more information about larks, go to bedsider.org or allaccesseky.org.
0: Next is an interview with Carrie Carter, an employee here at Apple Shop. In this piece, Carrie explains her experience working in the public school system and seeing teenage pregnancy firsthand my pregnancy was planned.
3: Um, I kind of, um, I tend to say that she was, if anything, over, overly planned <laughs> Cause, um, because of fertility problems, it took me almost two years to get pregnant and uh, it was a big struggle. So I was really grateful when it finally happened and, um, and luckily everything went well. I taught briefly at a school in Knot County um, as a permanent substitute. So I taught for a whole school year um, and I taught art. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a core class. Uh, but I do think that allowed me to work with all ages at that school. Uh, it was a through K-12 school and there were several of my female students who um, either had a child at home or were pregnant during the school year um, or actually had a goal to, to get pregnant while they were still in high school. And I struggled with that um, because I, at the time I taught, there had been a lot of um, funding going towards abstinence-only education and not enough work with um, um, STI and STD and pregnancy prevention. Um, and so as someone who believes that that's incredibly important, especially for young people, it was, it was hard. Um, I heard a lot of young students say, well, if I get pregnant, my mom or my grandmother will take care of it and help. And so, it's, so they really, they kind of wanted to get pregnant at a young age because they saw it as being easy, um, or they didn't think that it would be difficult. Um, and to be fair, some of the students that I saw that had children at home um, already didn't seem to be struggling with it so much because they did have a lot of help and a lot of support. I, I think they just saw it as a chance to have that, um, have a deep connection and, and love, like the things that you want out, out of being a parent. Um, but the lack of, um, there was a lack of people um, or there weren't a lot of people who could share experiences for why that might not be the best time and place and situation to be in. Um, so they saw their friends or, th- or their mom got pregnant when they were young and so they saw it work out and so they weren't scared. <laughs> um, I think I've been fortunate enough to be in a community and a friend group and my family is um, open enough that I feel personally like I'm in a good community to talk about birth control and I've been open with my friends and family about medications I take and... Um, I encourage them to do the same with me, and I don't know that young people feel informed enough. Um, I just know that in my experience, um, it took a lot of trial and error to find birth control that worked successfully for me. Um, And I think that that can be true of just about anybody. Um, You want to find something that um, you have an easy time taking, obtaining, and um, feel comfortable with and that you feel comfortable using within, with a partner you might have. Um, I think there's always more to learn um, and I think that just providing as much information as possible um, through resources like this or f- through doctor's offices or through the health department or school is the best thing that can be done for younger people who are looking to learn more about it my experience with struggling with infertility um, and hormonal and endocrine disorders and my health in general uh, has made me realize that um, it was I wanted to be a mother and have a child and be pregnant for a long time um, I didn't really want to do that when I was in my teens or my early twenties but when I got to my mid-twenties and it was a goal of mine I just um, you can oftentimes feel really impatient about that if you get excited about the idea of um, biologically becoming a mother or or, or not biologically either. But I think it's just important to know that you really do have time and you don't have to rush. And those feelings of love and excitement and um, and the joy that you get when you become a parent, it's going to happen for you no matter what. If it's a goal that you really have, um, you can take a lot of different routes to do that. You don't have to, you can adopt and or... um, go through lots of different other processes but I think young people sometimes get in a hurry to feel um, to feel that love of being a parent and that's a wonderful thing but it's also something that will come no matter how old you are Um, and so I just would encourage young people who have parenting as a goal for their life just to not rush and to feel stable and secure before you get into it if, if at all possible and and if and if it happens sooner than you expect or than you ideally hope for, um, to just know that there are lots of resources and help and lots of supportive people who are, will be excited about it and, and help you in any way that they need to.
0: Next, we'll hear a piece called Not Your Mama Sex Ed, which is an interview with Tanya Turner, creator of Sexy Sex Ed. Tanya explains the history of her sex ed course and how it differs from abstinence only courses taught in public schools
4: people are having a lot of bad experiences with sex ed and so what we really have to figure out is a way to move people past those bad experiences um, so that they can fully show up in the space and see it as a safe space. I was a part of the Stay Together Appalachian Youth Project when I was in my early 20s, early and late 20s. I've aged out of that network now but they are still going strong and doing really amazing things but Back in 2012, we held our Summer Institute, a week-long gathering of young people doing skill shares um, in different Appalachian states. The Summer Institute was in East Tennessee, and I was a part of the planning process um, and was doing some work, other work with uh, the Highlander Center that summer. And when we were going back and forth thinking about the skills we really needed to offer young people and getting a lot of feedback about what people wanted to learn while they were there through our registration process, we heard a lot about sex ed, um, which we were kind of surprised about. So when I got back, I felt really inspired. And I knew we needed this for the State Project Summer Institute anyway, so I decided to develop our own. So I did some internet research. And I talked to a couple people um, who were also interested and I developed Sexy Sex Ed, which is what it's came to be known now. The first Sexy Sex Ed was in 2012 at the State Summer Institute, and there were 40 people in the workshop. And as the more people that came in, I was just sweating bullets because it was my first time trying to pull this off. Uh, Highlander Center was a little nervous about it because they had had a previous scare, uh, with people doing, um, a sex workshop on the premises with gildos and sex toys. And I didn't have anything like that. It wasn't, um, it wasn't going to be anything like that, but they were still pretty scared and they didn't even want me to hand out condoms. <laughs> so, you know, it was a pretty, at the time, a pretty risky, scary thing, even at a social justice center. Um, so that was pretty wild, but, um, we had probably 10 teenagers in that first, workshop and then some 40-year-olds who were uh, there with the teenagers because they had to have adult supervision. Um, And then we had all ages in between, um, about 40 people, and it ended up going really great. At the beginning of the workshop, I was obviously nervous. Other people were nervous. And the older people um, came up to me and said, you know, if if this gets if this gets too bad, we may have to take the kids out. And I was like, I understand, but I don't think it will. But you know, you all, and I said at the beginning, and any time anyone needs to step out, you go ahead. So long story short, that was the beginning. Um, it went wonderful. And at the end of the workshop, the older people came up and said, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And the kids had a lot of fun. And um, I think they were all, uh, it definitely made it an interesting scenario that they were in the space with their like adult allies that had brought them to this space. One of the activities we do in Sexy Six Ed is a theater piece where people create really quick jingle song and dance numbers about the five bodily fluids that transfer disease. And so a lot of times it's pretty difficult for people to name all five of those. It's um, strangely not things that we're taught often. And so the five bodily fluids that transfer disease are cum, pre-cum, vaginal fluid, blood and breast milk. And um, we split up into five groups, however many people are in the workshop, and each group works together for 10 or 15 minutes to create a little song and dance ditty um, with that word, with their word, and then they, we all perform them for everybody.
0: Breast, breast milk, <laughs> breast milk. Don't drink it unless you're a baby. <laughs> breast <laughs> milk, breast <laughs> milk. <laughs> if you sick with STDs, don't drink the baby.
5: <laughs> And that's
4: your doctor said. <laughs> so that's one of the first things we do during the workshop. One, it goes ahead and shows us how little we know about some of this stuff, because that, that seems like an easy question, right, to think about. And then it's usually pretty hard for people to come up with all five. But it also breaks the ice first up because everyone's out of their comfort zone because they're having to sing and dance in front of everyone else. And they're having to sing and dance about breast milk or pre-come. <laughs> and so you get a lot of, you get people out of their comfort zone immediately, you get them into a creative space, um, which is a space I feel like when people are being their most creative selves, they're a lot more willing to learn and grow and challenge themselves and each other. We draw, that's another piece of the creative process that I think really draws knowledge out of people um, and a lot of curiosity. Yes. You guys do- They drew out the reproductive system, and then we labeled it and talked about how, how things work in both reproductive systems. Um, and it ends up in a really good conversation, and, and kids are learning things from one another, and you realize, you realize that a, a silly question you thought you had that was silly, other people had as well, and would say, yeah, and this, and this. So at the end of the workshop, there's a lot more space for um, people just to ask anything they want, and you know I get all kinds of like questions like, "Do you have to shower before sex?" Or you know this is silly, this, not silly, but just really innocent, just logistical questions that people don't have anyone to ask. Some of the years, uh, it's changed a little bit here and there, but some of the years I would incorporate a go around early on so that people could um, share any any experience with sex ed they've had. And a few times I've heard good experiences, people were like, yeah, I had a really good sex ed teacher, but by and large, it's a lot of horror stories. Um, There just aren't clear paths for kids to learn, one, about sex, about desire, about our bodies. There's just so much to reproductive health that we don't even tip the iceberg of in in a school classroom setting. In the last couple years, i worked with the school systems um, and my job definitely was not to teach sex ed, but I uh, explored constantly and tried to figure out ways that I could work this in somehow. Like I'm in the school systems now, I have an end. surely I can figure this out. But the more questions I asked, the more questions I had about how sex ed is going on in, um, in our rural schools. Um, so what I, what I think I know now is that um, Kentucky actually has a fairly flexible law about sex ed so that counties can choose their own path they can do what they want but that has just left a lot of inconsistency and um, flying under the radar of not offering it at all I don't think it's the I don't think we set up the best basis for learning and we just need an overhaul we need a full overhaul um, to think about how young people learn and become curious and how you build curiosity in people. We can look to other countries for a lot of solutions around healthcare and all kinds of things. We can see where things are working and where they're not, um, like here. And so I think the country with the lowest teen pregnancy rate uh, is Sweden, and they start teaching sex ed in kindergarten, and they start with consent and love. What is love? What does love feel like? Who do you love? Why? You love your mom, you love your friend, you love your stuffed animal, you love your little sister. How are these things different? How does it feel to love? How do you show someone that you love them? How do you ask for love? These are concepts we can easily have with four and five and six year olds. And why we're not is really beyond me. So we are immediately told and socialized to think that our bodies are places we shouldn't be exploring, which is really toxic and scary. Um, because we have to be exploring ourselves. I think one of the reasons that sexual assault is through the roof, especially on college campuses, is that women aren't even encouraged to explore their own bodies. And so if women can't even get into a place where they are comfortable with their bodies like, and, and comfortable claiming space for themselves, we, we have a whole situation set up that is, um, that is built to fail. It's built to fail us. No means no. Keep them going. Um, be conscious, like, like awake. Awake, conscious, conscious. Yeah. yeah. Important part of it. Mm-hmm. See it. Around the election of 2016, I decided that uh, this was a space that needed to happen yesterday. And if sex ed wasn't going to happen in the schools, I had to figure out a way to bring it another place. And so, since the election last year, I've done about eight sex, sexy sex ed workshops with young people around the region, all volunteer and me just like calling and begging people to let me come into it in spaces where I know, where I knew young people were. I definitely think that, that there's just like a paradigm shift to have around ownership of our bodies and access to knowledge and the way we're able to speak about things. And I think women, women already are locked in some pretty toxic cycles really because of some of the things that I've already said about how we are raised and the expectations we have. Um, But our lack of access to health care is a huge part of that. Like having so little control over your own health care is a pretty scary thing. Um, And it seems like in our current administration, we are going to have less and less access to the kind of health care that women need, especially in rural parts of the country.
0: Now we'll hear a piece created this summer which follows the story of Insulina the Insulin Pump, a superhero that helps type 1 diabetics manage their blood sugar and A1C levels.
6: Hello, my name is Insulina and I'm an insulin pump for type 1 diabetics. This is Tina, she is T1D. She currently does not want any children due to the many diabetic complications that may happen to her during pregnancy such as low and high glucose levels, insulin resistance, and birth defects. Tina also wants to wait before she gets pregnant because of her A1C level. Currently, she is at 8.6%, and she needs to be at 7% or lower. The best way to prevent these things from happening is to not get pregnant, and I've brought a few friends along to help. We have the implant, the patch, and the pill. The implant, also called the bar, is the birth control that you put in your arm. It is 99% effective, discreet, and lasts three plus years. Next is the patch. It is 92 to 99% effective, small, and only needs to be changed once a week. Last is the birth control pill. It is 99% effective when taken correctly, can regulate periods, and has to be taken every day. Whenever Tina does decide she's ready to get pregnant, I'll be here to help her manage her blood glucose levels. Until then, this is Insulina signing off. Make sure to be safe and have fun.
0: I sat down and talked to Emily Collier, one of the creators of this piece. Emily has been a type one diabetic for nine years and often struggles to balance her reproductive health and diabetic needs.
6: In AMI, one of our exercises was to do an object piece and there were three teams and each team was given an object to make a little film over and it could be about anything to do with that object. And my team got an insulin pump and I thought it was very fitting because I've been type on diabetic for nine years and since this summer is about all access and sex and things like that, I thought it be really fun to tie diabetes in with sex because I've always wondered like, what happens if a diabetic has kids or what can happen. So I did the Insulina piece. Um, me and my teammate, we did it like a draw my life almost. Um, the whole piece was done on a whiteboard and it tells the diabetic complications that may happen if a diabetic becomes pregnant and doesn't have regulated blood sugars Um, And it also tells of different ways to prevent pregnancy. When diabetics are on their periods, their blood sugars can stay really, really high. Mine tend to stay high and I can become insulin resistant during that time. And then also during your period, you can become very insulin sensitive. So you can have anywhere from super high blood sugar to super low blood sugar. Um, And diabetics that don't have like good blood sugars. If they get pregnant, they're more at risk for birth defects. It can harm the mother. It can harm the child. I think that sex in general just needs to be talked about more, and putting something medical with it will make people listen
0: more. This summer marks my second AMI program and third semester working with All Access. And for me, it's been a life-changing experience. AMI has taught me to view the Appalachian region, my community, and the people around me in a much more positive light. Through working with All Access, I've been able to educate others, as well as myself, about birth control and reproductive health care important topics that unfortunately hold many stigmas. I was curious to learn how this summer's interns feel impacted by their AMI and All Access experience. And hear their reproductive health stories.
2: I applied for AMI because I've been with all access for two semesters before this summer so I feel like I kind of belonged here and the work we do is very important. I applied for AMI because
4: I've heard about it for years from my uncle and
5: different people that always talk so positive about it and so I really wanted to get into it and see what it was like. So I got involved with AMI in the summer of 2017 and I worked with Higher Ground Across the Mountain at the Southeast College Community Campus and I had some friends over there who had done AMI before and so they're the ones who told me that I should apply and like what it was about and I wanted to kind of venture into film just to learn a little bit more and this is a great opportunity and it's like kind of really close to home. I first applied for AMI in
2: 2015 and I applied because I have always been around the camera. I have home videos of me filming things around my house and I just love being behind the camera.
6: I wanted to apply for AMI for three years and I felt like this was the best time to do it because I really like the subject
5: matter that we're covering. It's kind of like AMI with a twist in my mind. Just like AMI but we're focusing on something that's like super important in our community so just to kind of see that going on locally and like not somewhere else, like have that here. I kind of really wanted to be involved in that.
2: I think that the theme summer is important because people need to learn about birth control, the different tops. I think reproductive health is very important and it's not really talked about a lot. So our work is mostly just getting the word out of reproductive health.
7: My sex ed experience in high school was like a two- or three-day class period where our old man gym teacher awkwardly talked to us about sex and was mostly like, hey you guys shouldn't be doing this at your age, you should wait until you're married, Um, abstinence only, just say no. And then the health department came in and no one took it seriously, like the learning experience wasn't really there because the ladies were more fed up with people being disruptive than actually trying to teach students that wanted to learn or needed to learn these things.
5: I didn't have sex ed in high school. Harlan County High School did not have a sexual education class. So I didn't learn anything about sex from that school. Um, I learned about sex from the students and on the school bus and everywhere else but school. I would say that I learned more about sex reading Fifty Shades of Grey than I did my entire time at high school. Like, No teacher ever sat down and said this is what you should or shouldn't do or this is how to take care of your body, right? But kids kept getting pregnant and no one wanted to talk about it. So no, there was no sex ed. I had a sex ed
6: class in middle school and it was taught by some high schoolers i think it was volunteer work that they had to do it and they only taught us about condoms it wasn't very informative the class wasn't very informative and they held a lot of stuff back i think because we were in younger grades and then i had one my freshman year of high school and they taught about a few different types of contraceptive but it wasn't informative either and I felt like with the class I had you couldn't talk about it openly because people would make fun of you and if you asked questions they thought those questions were
7: dumb. I think schools could better sex education by just being open with students I mean we're basically adults at that age so why try to hide things from us I feel as if you should be open with us about how to safely do those things with our bodies
6: I think that the teachers need to teach more material. Um, In a lot of states, it is stressed that abstinence only is the only way to have safe sex, and that's not true. And it's hard around this area because of religion and teen pregnancy rates and things like that to learn about sex ed. So I think that if the teachers would have more material to cover, and I think that if students would
5: be more open to listen. It's not just up to the schools to teach sex ed, although I feel like that's their place, but um, I feel like people, parents, should kind of have that talk at home. Like, regardless of if you want your kid to not have sex or if you don't think your kid's having sex, odds are your kid's gonna get curious. That's just how the, the human body works. We're curious and we have these urges and these hormones and if you don't address them, we're gonna handle them like ourselves. And that's where you have teen pregnancies pop up. No one ever sat them down and said, we know you're gonna do it, but this is how you can do it safely. Or these are some options that you can take or some steps that you can take to take care of your body or your partner's body. Like no one sits them down and does that, yet they complain whenever teenagers get pregnant. So there's just like this shame around that talk that I wish wasn't there. And um, I wish that kids felt more comfortable talking about their bodies and asking questions, and didn't feel so embarrassed or ashamed because it's the human body, and we all have those hormones and urges, so
0: like, why not just talk about them? One story that stuck out to me was from intern Shaylin Clark, as she explains her recent experience being denied the form of birth control she wanted. Friday, I went to
5: the OBGYN and I've been on the birth control patch for like six years. And I expected to go in there and get something other than the patch because I was like, I want something a little more discreet and that lasts a little bit longer. I'm getting ready to go off to college in the fall. So I kind of wanted to get the arm implant or the IUD and if not get them, then learn a little bit more about them or something else and maybe get something different. Um, So I go in just to get a different birth control And I ended up being told by my doctor that I cannot get the IUD. And the Harlan Clinic in general, they just don't do the arm implant. But he said that I cannot get the IUD or the patch. He said that those are for women who can't swallow the pill and I am capable of swallowing the pill. Therefore, that is what I will get. And he wrote me a year prescription for the pill i explained to him that i can't remember the pill i do not like the pill and he explained to me that i'm just going to have to get over it and train myself to remember the pill or set an alarm or do whatever i have to do in the morning or in the evening or at night and take the pill it kind of made me feel like i didn't have power over my body like he kind of took away the choice of me being like oh i want this or i want to try this or i think this is going to work or this has worked before so i want to do this again He kind of just told me, no, like, I want you to have the pill, so here it is. Like, you don't get to choose anymore.
0: Birth control discrimination and rejection is unfortunately common, especially in the close-knit communities of rural areas like eastern Kentucky. When you live in a small town where everyone knows everyone and communities are often built on religion, access is even more scarce. Despite being able to overcome the physical barriers of obtaining health care such as insurance, money, and transportation, these emotional barriers hinder the process as well. That's why projects like All Access EKY are so vital to show that it's okay to seek healthcare and nothing should obstruct patients from doing so. We hope to inspire and educate people in our community and beyond regarding their bodies, birth control, and reproductive health care. So far,
5: my experience with the AMI All Access has been really good, and I've learned a lot, not just about myself and my body, but about like, other people and their bodies as well, and how certain things may not work for everyone, and there are more options out there for birth control and contraceptives than like, what I thought. So. It's been really good. I've learned a lot. I'm still learning, and I've met a lot of cool people. I didn't know much about my body,
6: and I didn't really know anything about birth control, me not having any experiences. I figured it would be useful to know, and being transgender, I need to know more about my body that I never knew. So I'm just kind of learning. It's a learning process. I learned a lot this summer about not only filming, but about birth control rights, different types of birth control, and like sex education in general. I've learned that there's a lot more methods of birth control than I knew that there were. Like, I didn't know that the patch was a thing. I thought that the implant and the IUD were the same thing. Um, And I also have learned that all that stuff's not as scary as people put it off to be. Like, you shouldn't be scared to try a new birth control. You just have to do it. It's honestly changed my life because like the stuff I
2: learned in All Access, I would have never learned outside of it. They don't teach most of the stuff we learn in schools or like my parents. I've never like had the talk with my parents, but I mean, I've learned mostly of what I know now from working with Apple Shop.
7: I'm a pretty big feminist and I think what All Access is doing is very inspirational with how they're covering uh, women's health care and birth control. Um, I came from a school and family where that wasn't talked about and I learned about that on my own. So like this summer has been a big eye opener for me seeing how open (laughs) um, adults can actually be with this kind of thing and how this is how this should be treated.
4: I just learned a lot from people's different experiences of how like taboo it still is to talk about sex and reproductive health care and it's been years now and people still shame it so much and it needs to change.
6: I think AMI and Apple Shop in general is a good environment for young people to grow in and I think it's a very open and safe environment for people that need that. I just feel like it's a safe space to share my ideas
2: and not be judged.
7: AMI is one of the most influential parts of my life and I would recommend this for any young adult in Appalachia.
0: As this summer comes to a close, we want to invite everyone to our film screening on July 28th at 7 p.m. in the Apple Shop Theater. This AMI program and the films created this summer are unlike none other before. So don't miss the opportunity to share this moment with our community and talk to the filmmakers themselves. Admission is free and everyone is welcome to attend. We hope to see you there.